Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. I definitely said in my last episode that the next time you heard this podcast that there'd be a new intro. I lied, you guys. (laughs) Fucking lied. I did not get around to it. I could have waited to release this episode in order to finish that, but I didn't want to rush it. And I did really want to, or I do really want to get back to trying to release an episode on a weekly basis. So I sided with release the episode today with the same intro and hopefully next week there will be a new one. Finished writing it, just got to record it and put it together. Um, I am very excited to bring you guys this episode with Mackenzie. I, as I say, when we first start recording, have been pressuring her to be on my podcast for quite some time now. Um, and she's finally here and it was well worth the wait and the conversation was awesome. I always love when I have a woman on the podcast who I feel like is aligned with me in so many different ways, especially as it relates to talking about and, uh, how we see the world through sexuality and gender and, um, just embodiment in general, uh, the two of us. I just never can shut up. We are constantly riffing off of each other, not just about sexuality, but about a whole host of different topics. And uh, we've never met in person, as is the case in this day and age, especially now when no one is seeing anyone in person, but um, very much hope to meet her in person soon. Um, Before we get into the show, uh, I wanted to talk about a few things. Um, I had this epiphany the other day, the other week, what is time? Um, I was driving in a car. It's the full moon. So I guess that was maybe about a week ago, 10 days ago. I don't know you guys. Um, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous sunset driving up to the Sangre de Cristo mountains in the San Luis Valley. And I had this memory that I think about from time to time, but having this memory at the time that I did a couple weeks ago was specifically impactful because of the location that I was when I had it. Um, So I had this experience, I must have been 16, and I was visiting my grandparents who at the time lived in Colorado Springs, 
um, which is interestingly sort of on the other side of the mountains um, to where I am now. Um, I believe it's also the Sangre de Cristo range, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. <laughs> Kill me. Um, but it's, it's quite close and the landscape is actually very similar. So on the one hand, you have this like huge, huge valley stretching out for miles and miles on one side. And if you look to the other side, you have these huge, um, you know, huge mountains on the other. So it's a, it's a pretty big juxtaposition depending on where you're looking, if it's East or West. And anyway, I was visiting my grandparents in Colorado Springs and, I have a very good relationship actually with those, that set of grandparents right now. Um, when I was younger for multiple complicated reasons, I didn't through no fault of theirs though. Um, anyway, so I didn't feel when I visited them super comfortable all the time. I always felt a little awkward and like maybe they didn't know me very well and maybe had to kind of put on a show. And I had just started dating my first boyfriend ever um, who was older than me, uh, as is my style. Um, so when I was 16, he was 24 and, uh, it was, you know, seven years, maybe now that I'm 30, that wouldn't be such a big deal. But at the time it was definitely a big deal. And he was very cool though, and very nice and very respectful. And I remember when I first started seeing him, uh, I think my mom, could sort of sense that like something was going on because I was like more excited to go into town and hang out, which was the thing you did, uh, where I grew up. And, um, she sort of started questioning me like, is there something going on? Did you meet someone? And I said, yes. And I finally sort of came clean and I said, yeah, he's 24 and, um, sort of begrudgingly told her the details and didn't really know what she'd say or if she'd be mad. And she sort of just looked at me and said, look, if I told you not to see him, I know you would anyway. So instead of you being stressed out and doing this in secret, why don't you just bring him over and I'll meet him? So that's what I did. Um, and both my parents agreed that he was a good dude and that they didn't feel weird about me um, spending time with him and they trusted him. So at home and especially amongst my friends, everyone was cool. Uh, my grandparents, as far as I knew, were also cool, but I was visiting them in Colorado. This must have been like, I don't know, maybe a few months after we started dating and my grandparents had invited a friend of theirs. I have no idea who this friend was. I don't think I've ever talked to this person again, but this person came and um, I think I'm definitely the type of person that like has a hard time uh with like discretion, I tend to think that everyone is always going to be cool with whatever it is I say, and they're always going to understand me. And I think I definitely grew up in a very sort of like open-minded household, um, which probably added to that problem, uh, thinking that just like everyone would be like, oh yeah, totally. That's like a really weird, politically incorrect taboo subject that you just brought up. But yeah, I'm willing to engage. Learned that lesson several times, more than several. Um, anyway, so this woman came over for dinner, we were all talking, I'm sure also as a 16 year old in this new relationship, probably thinking I was like super cool, um, was like excited to share what was going on in my life and it made me feel more mature. And anyway, I brought up my boyfriend and, um, 
I think at, by this time I was a virgin and we had not had sex yet. He was not a virgin when I met him. Um, but we waited a while and he sort of let me take the lead on that. So at the time when I was visiting my grandparents, I had not had sex. And, um, anyway, I remember telling this woman about my boyfriend and that he was a bit older and I don't remember all the details, but I remember her looking at me with a mix of like so much shame and judgment and sort of like shook her head in almost a like tisk tisk kind of a way and said, you know, he's only with you for the sex. Like he just wants to fuck a little girl. And at the time, I'm pretty sure that like, I think my, my dad was there with me as well. Maybe my brother, but I'm not sure. But it was the kind of thing where like maybe one person was sitting with us and my grandparents were in the kitchen cooking. So I'm not totally sure everyone heard her say that. Um, but certainly at least one or two people heard her and no one really defended me. Um, my memory might not be serving me totally correctly. It's possible that whoever was sitting there, like I can't imagine if my dad was sitting there that he wouldn't have said something, but he may have just been like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Like, I don't think that's the case. I've met him. He's fine. Um, but I was infuriated and partially it was because I wished everyone else who was there was equally as infuriated. Um, but you know, I think it was definitely a trigger for me, not just to, that made me angry, but probably brought up a lot of completely unexamined sexual shame that I don't think I thought about till many, many years later. Um, and just sort of like a trigger in terms of, I definitely think that I lived most of my life still do, but I have people in my life now, whereas before I didn't, where I just always felt so intensely misunderstood and like an outsider. And, um, this just brought up a lot for me. And I felt like really gross about the fact that I was supposed to sit at the table and have dinner with this woman. Like I just wanted to punch her in the face. I was so fucking annoyed. And I remember walking outside and I called my mom and, um, I remember my mom saying to me, I remember this so vividly. I took a walk from their house. Their house was sort of pushed up against these huge mountains. And so I'd walked away from the house toward the valley. And then I was like walking up to their house with the mountains in the background. And it was, the sun had already set um, and it was getting dark, but you could still sort of see the outlines of the mountains overhead. And uh, you could see the stars coming up and it definitely felt sort of small and humbled and comforted by the presence of those big mountains. And I remember my mom saying to me, just be where you are. And that was the first time I'd heard anyone say that to me. And I think it took me many, many, many years and therapy sessions uh, to actually figure out how to embody that. So, you know, obviously I think we hear a thing and we understand it maybe on like a logical and intellectual level, but then it takes a really long time before it's integrated. Um, but I do feel like I deeply understood it at the time, even if it wasn't something that I could totally embody. I think I've especially struggled 
over the years with a lot of like control issues um, that I feel like my desire to control or my feeling out of control is very tied to my inability to be where I am at any given time. Um, And so I've definitely gone on a long journey with that where I, um, especially in the past few years, feel a lot more capable of relinquishing control, recognizing I don't have control and being present. Anyway, I remember her saying that and I remember because it wasn't embodied at the time, but because I understood it and I really wanted to embrace it, that I remember getting off the phone with her and sort of continuing the walk up back toward their house, toward the mountains. And I remember thinking, okay, you can't leave here right now. You're here for another couple of days. You can't do anything to change this woman's opinion. Starting some sort of weird temper tantrum when you get back isn't going to do anything. Okay, so be where you are. Like, what does that mean? And I look up and I see the mountains and I'm like, okay, fuck. Well, first of all, this is beautiful. So I'm cool and happy to be here where I am in terms of this gorgeous landscape. And Colorado in general was always a state that I just felt always very energetically aligned with. Um, and I thought, yeah, look, I live on the East Coast, like outside of New York uh, in the suburbs. I don't get to see these mountains very frequently. I only get to see them when I come and visit my grandparents. And even if those visits are tricky, and even if this night in particular is especially painful, what can I get out of this situation anyway? You know, despite, in spite of all of those things that were going on. And then a couple of weeks ago, I'm in the car driving toward the mountains, although now I'm on the other side of the mountains. So the valley is in the west instead of the east, uh, and the mountains are in the east. And as I'm driving toward the mountains, for whatever reasons or reasons we can probably understand, that same memory popped into my head that I've referred back to. But this time it felt more potent and more meaningful because I was both literally and figuratively on the other side of the mountain. And at this point in my life since then, so I don't know what that's been, it's uh, 15, 16 years, 17 years since then, quite sometime, the entirety of my 20s, my late teens, into my early 30s. So a lot of shit's gone down. And at the time when I was 16, I didn't have that thing that I have now where it's very easy to look back at the past and see how things have happened like in time or decisions that I've made that when I was there in the moment didn't make a ton of sense. Um, at least not in terms of the trajectory of my life, let's say. Um, but looking back now, of course I can see like, wow, like, because I did this, it led to this. And then this led to that. And I met this person, which led to this thing and that thing. And it's beautiful. And I think maybe that's why as you get older, you know, it becomes easier perhaps to relinquish control because you have that perspective because you can look back um, and hopefully recognize that even if you don't understand it, like something's going on behind the scenes, changes are taking place that you might not understand or see until many years later, 
but it's just sort of much more fun now than it was before when I was so angry and frustrated and didn't understand why something was happening. Now I just like approach that shit with curiosity, you know, and, you know, whether it's this global pandemic or whether it's an argument I have with someone or a breakup that I go through or, um, and even an injury that I have, you know, an illness that I'm struggling with, all of those things now I really just try and see them for what they are. And I just sort of wait and I'm, I remember to be where I am. Um, because first of all, I can't do anything else, but be where I am. And second of all, because what a waste of time to fight it. What a waste of time to wish you were somewhere else, you know? And of course we have to be careful because, um, to embrace this concept of presence or to be where we are can obviously lead to stagnancy, right? Like we're always smarter than we think we are. So you can go into your therapist's office and be like, well, you know, I just am where I am right now. That might be true, but that also might be an excuse that you're telling yourself just to keep yourself stuck because you're afraid of leaping, right? Sometimes we need to leap. Sometimes we need to stay in place. Um, so I just felt like I wanted to mention that because you can always use any of these sort of spiritually enlightened concepts to just, uh, spiritual bypass your entire life. Um, but I just wanted to tell that story because, we're definitely in a period of time collectively and globally right now where we simply cannot control anything. And I've been in this position myself personally, uh, and now it's happening everywhere, right? Like everyone's in this predicament. Um, I just recorded, uh, my friend Aaron and I host a podcast called Whore Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. I love how I always spell out rapport because I get that like Colbert rapport confuses people, but I just assume everyone knows how to spell whore. I feel like it's an insult to your intelligence if I spell out whore. Um, anyway, uh, Aaron and I had a long hiatus from recording. Aaron, um, as she describes it, has been going through a personal apocalypse. Um, and we just recorded our first episode back. It's been several months since we've recorded, uh, so look out for that this week. It'll be episode six. Um, and we gave an update on where we've been and just what's going on in our lives and then talked about a few other things. Um, but we were talking about this in the show, so I won't like, uh, rattle on about it too much now because I want you to go listen to horror rapport. Um, but we were talking about this, the space that's created where we don't have any control and whether that's just happening in our personal lives, whether it's happening externally, whether in the case of Aaron, for example, it's happening both personally and externally. Um, it's an invitation and it's an invitation to be present and it's an invitation to think about how you can best utilize that space and that time. I know I've talked about this in different ways in uh, a few of the past podcasts that I've put out, but I just keep wanting to come back to it. I think whenever something, you know, I approach this podcast very intuitively, uh, it's probably the most intuitive, 
creative project in my life. Not probably. It definitely is. And so I feel like when I keep having thoughts about a thing um, and want to talk about it, even if I've shared it before, maybe in a slightly different way, maybe I'm just repeating myself. But either way, when things keep being present in my mind, I feel like they're meant to be shared. Um, I don't think this whole message of be where you are and be present is like a one-time gig. Uh, I think it's a lifelong process, just like most other things. Um, so I hope you're able to be present right now and, uh, in five, 10 years, maybe in a month, even you'll look back and be like, whoa, look at what came out of that period of time. I'm glad I stayed focused and I stayed present because fighting it would have been a waste of everyone's time and energy. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, I have finally reinvigorated my Patreon page. Um, this podcast is at the moment the only source of income that I have. I know times are tough, but if you have a few dollars, like five bucks a month maybe, uh, you're not going to Starbucks anymore. So if you still have an income or enough of an income or enough savings and you want to donate me your latte, I would really appreciate it. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Um, depending on what level you join, there are all sorts of perks. Um, I just recently put out an official millennials guide, uh, reading list. So I've compiled all of the book recommendations from every podcast guest I've ever had into one document. And I'm going to be updating that regularly. Um, I've been creating playlists, uh, on Spotify that I've shared. There are two so far and I'm in the process of making a third. So that's another perk that you get. Um, and also there is a, an, an exclusive WhatsApp group chat. Um, I think especially now being able to connect to people, especially like-minded people to help keep us sane is of the utmost importance. And so I thought, uh, better now than any other time to create a place where we could all chat. So, um, I don't know how many people are in there now, maybe 12. I think I'm probably going to cap it at 20 or 25. So it doesn't get too overwhelming for anyone. Like no one wants to be pinged constantly. Although, very respectful thus far. Um, but the purpose of that group chat is just to communicate with each other, meet, virtually meet some of the other podcast fans. I've been sending a bunch of like articles and clips of videos I've been watching just to share what's on my mind in a sort of more comprehensive way. Um, and even if none of those perks interest you, but you still want to support the podcast, uh, you don't have to participate in any of them. You can just send me uh, a few bucks a month. So, patreon.com slash Anya Cates. Um, if you, I love how I just switch between saying Cates and Cots. I still haven't figured out what my identity is, people. I'm sorry. Um, if you don't have any money, totally understand, uh, but you still want to support the show, a good way to do that is to go into iTunes, hit subscribe, leave some stars, and write a review. There are literally thousands and thousands of you listening to this, and I think there's like 115, maybe there's 130 reviews that people have left, uh, or stars rather much less who have left actual reviews. But if every single one of you went in there and left stars, it would help this podcast show up in, uh, search results. Um, 
and most listened to playlists uh, lists way more frequently. It also helps people take the podcast seriously. So if I reach you out to a guest that's a little bit more well-known, uh, the more people that they see listen to the show and like the show, the more likely they are to come on the show. Um, so you can't really see listener numbers there. All you see are reviews and ratings. So uh, that will just benefit you in the end, honestly, because I'll get cooler people on the show because they think my podcast is more legit, because let's be honest, super legit. Um, Anyway, so yeah, iTunes, hit subscribe, leave some stars in a review, um, or head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, Kates, whatever. Um, What else do I want to mention? I think that's it. I think we will get into this conversation because... It's awesome. Mackenzie's awesome. I'm going to play you in with a song called Changes by Langhorn Slim. Um, I think you'll be able to figure out why. Certainly speaks to going through lots of transitions and not really understanding why or where they're going to be uh, or how they're going to turn out to be rather and um, just accepting them for what they are. So enjoy this song. Enjoy this podcast. And I will catch you on the other side. Things could be stranger, but I don't know how. I'm going through changes now. Could spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. I'm going through changes now. That have just begun Under a purple sun There's many reasons We are what we've become I'm going through changes Ripping out pages I'm going through changes now different, but I don't know how. I'm going through changes, 
I am here with Mackenzie, who I have to admit, I have like been peer pressuring to come on my <laughs> podcast for, I feel like, a long time. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited we're finally doing this. And I am I know you've said several times, like, I trust our timing, and I think I do as well. So I'm happy we're having this now. I'm sure there is a reason for it. But um, I would love to start with you sort of describing the work that you do Um I remember when I came across you for the first time, I don't know what it was. I mean, we're like online friends, so our communication is mostly via Instagram, but I just felt like something about our energies like aligned. Um, And I felt like we started talking about really deep things really quickly, um, which is my jam. So me too. (laughs) without me like messing up and and summarizing what you do I'd love for you to talk about um what you do and uh we can kind of jump off from there perfect well thanks so much for peer pressuring me to be here I'm excited about it um so what do I do that's a great question um I am really in the business of helping people to reconnect to their bodies and reconnect to themselves Um, I am an authentic Tantra practitioner and a certified sexologist, um, but, you know, most people don't really know what that means anyway, but um, I'm not really a sex coach. A lot of people read sexologists and they think, oh, sex coach, like, you know, all these different crazy positions and like how to have like, you know, really mind blowing sex. But I really refer to myself more as an intimacy coach. um, And I really like to give people, I tell people I have a box of tools, right? I have all these different embodiment tools breath work, um, pelvic movements, pelvic floor exercises, um, all different kinds of tools that I give people to be able to help them reconnect with themselves. And so, you know, most of my clients are people who have had a lot of, you know, either body shame, like eating disorders in the past, or like religious wounding, um, any, any type of conditioning really that keeps people dissociative from their body, people that have trauma, Um, I'm not a therapist, so I don't really dive into the specific traumas with people. I am more so here to give somatic healing tools to help them move forward and help them reconnect. So what I do goes really fantastic in tandem with therapy, but it's definitely not like a replacement for therapy. Um, And I do work, you know, mainly work with individuals and couples. I I really love facilitating group spaces as well and really just uh, facilitating connection of all different kinds. So when you talk about reconnecting to our bodies and it's sort of intersection with sexuality, like, do you feel like the work you do is, I mean, I assume other types of body work as well, but I would love to hear like that aspect of it for you. And is that, um, is that a choice because you feel like our sexual selves are so integral to our sort of embodiment or something just like that you were really called to in general? Like, where does the sexual aspect of that embodiment come in for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Well, first of all, I think everything in nature is inherently sexual, right? You know, so the the lineage that I practice and teach is really rooted in the Tibetan five element teachings, which is going back to just meditating on the elements of nature themselves. And of course, our sexuality is a huge part of our humanity. And so, you know, (laughs) 
again, it's tantra is tantra means to weave. First of all, that's what the word tantra means. So it's like we're weaving our awareness of our physical body and our awareness of our mental, emotional, spiritual body together. Because it's not about leaving the body. It's not about avoiding our sexuality or avoiding our humanity. It's about how can we bring these different facets of ourselves together and be in the body, on the planet, in the world. So we're not escaping anything. And what I tell my clients is, and what I've had to learn for myself is that when you are disconnected from your sexuality, when you are disconnected from your body, it's not just like, oh, I'm not having orgasms or, oh, I'm not able to be, you know, intimate. It's like, it's how you show up in the world, you know, like it's how, how are you able to speak your truth? Are you able to creatively express, you know, like our, even physically our, our larynx and our throat and our pelvic floor muscles are all very connected. And so chances are like, if you have a really tight throat or if you have like tight jaw tension that you walk around with all the time, chances are like your pelvic floor is really tight. And so that creative sexual energy that can be harnessed and, you know, we can use that for intimacy, you can use that for physical connection and physical sexual expression. But again, that's also creative expression. It's also your sense of feeling empowered in your body. And I believe that we're all here to play a part in whatever um, restoration, hopefully, and healing of the world, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, you know, I believe in free will also, but um, I do believe that we all have gifts to share. And if you're not connected to yourself, which is a huge, you know, your sexuality is a huge part of who, who you are, and it's your own empowerment. So if you're not connected to that energetically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever way you want to look at it, you're not able to show up in the world and offer your gifts in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm already so into this conversation. Uh, (laughs) so I'd love to like expand more on in regard to how you define sexuality within these contexts. Like when a client comes to you and is, and you're talking about embodiment as far as sexuality goes, like I imagine that that is much more broad and comprehensive than having sex. (laughs) Um, so to talk about what aspects of sexuality, um, exist potentially outside of or in tandem with actual sex. So, so I guess, let me just like repeat this back to you for a second and then you can tell me if I'm hearing it correctly. The work that I do is a lot about sexual healing. So it's, it's learning and finding tools, which the five elements and, you know, those are like the meditations that we do and, um, you know, the pelvic movements and the breath work, all of these are tools to help us learn how to relax in the body, how to rewire the nervous system so that we can be present in the body. Because in order to have actual intimacy, whether it's with yourself, with nature, with another person, you have to be present in the body and you have to be vulnerable. You know, it is a vulnerable thing. And so Tantra for me, and I'm sure, you know, again, that word is used by a lot of different people for a lot of different things. Um, but it's, it's really a form of yoga. And so for me, Tantra is all about learning how to harness sexual energy and use it as a form of healing in the body. So that doesn't mean that you're not going to also have like mind blowing sex if you are practicing Tantra, because it does open you up in so many different ways. But again, it's not it's, that's not ever been the focus or the goal of like ancient tantrikas. The tantra, uh, they call the tantric path like the swift path. They mm-hmm. say there's like the path of the monk and then there's the path of the tantrika. 
And the idea behind this is that monks traditionally did not use the sex chakra or the base chakra. They did not engage with sexual energy. It was all about like going into the God realms or, um, you know, shooting energy up the spine. And in, in this lineage of tantra, in this lineage of tantra that I practice, it's all about containing this energy within the body because it's, it's so healing and it's, it's, again, it's empowering. So we're not escaping the body. Um, we're use, we're using it we're learning, we're just learning how to use sexual energy in a different way. And the reason they call it the swift path is because it's extremely transformative. So if you start weaving these practices in when you're having intimate relations with yourself or with someone else, when you are engaging in either self-pleasure or sexual activity, it's not only going to expand the sensation and the physical sensation in your body, it's also starting to like transform your consciousness and heal, heal you mind, body, spirit. Right. You know, it's funny, I've always been very called to sort of two things. One is, and when I say called to, I mean, I'm just like very curious and always wanted to learn about it. Um, One was always sexuality and the other was religion. And I was raised Jewish, not super religious. I didn't really understand any of it. Most organized religion didn't make any sense to me. I actually, up until probably four years ago, didn't really even understand what like spirituality was. I thought you were either religious or nothing. Um, And I remember, you know, like, it's just so interesting how we're so intuitively called to things. And of course, now I feel like I recognize the intersection of spirituality. um, And even like, let's say using air quotes, but like enlightenment um, and sex and sexuality. But I think that's vastly... Uh, not just misunderstood by our culture, but like it's not even within the lexicon of understanding the intersection between those two things because I think religion is very anti-sex and I think um, those who understand, you know, spirituality might often take those same tenets. Um, And I remember you were someone, I think you were the one who was posting about that book, The Sacred Prostitute. Yes, um, it, yeah. yeah, that was how we first connected. I think was okay. talking about that book. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> so, and I feel like, of course, like so many things in my life, I feel like I understood things in a sort of like nonverbal, intuitive way before, and mm-hmm. then I would like find a book and be like, yes, that's exactly the thing I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that book was that for me in terms of really helping to solidify this connection between spirituality and sexuality. Um, and I know you came from a pretty religious background. Um, so if you're open to it, I would really sort of love to hear like what that journey was for you of linking those two things. And, um, I could stack my question in 800 different ways in terms of like the conflicts that you sort of came up against, but that, that journey from a religious upbringing to doing this type of work, you know, is obviously like quite the um, quite the A to Z. So I would love to hear more about like what that process was for you and what you had to unpack in order to make that connection between spirituality and sexuality. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely open to sharing that. I'm just trying to think of how to condense that all in because obviously I'm 31 now and I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And (laughs) so there's a whole lot there. Um, But I will say that I was a very sexual child. 
I think part of that was just my nature. I think I'm just the way that I'm wired. I mean, I'm human. Um, And some people, you know, obviously sexuality is on the spectrum and some people have a higher sex drive than others. And I think I was just a very curious, very sensual kid. I mean, I also, you know, in terms of defining like sexuality and sensuality, I am across the board. I love sensual things. I love sexual things. I love all of it. Anything to do with the senses. (laughs) Um, But as a kid, I was really shamed for both. Not only from you know, school and like learning, you know, being taught is like a shit, like an eight year old that, you know, masturbation was a sin and it's, you know, you should only be having sex if it's heteronormative sex. And, um, you know, and I, of course my earliest sexual experiences were with women, you know, with girls. Cause that's like a lot of girls experience that. Um, and so, you know, there was, there was always a lot of shame around it. And it's interesting because when I think back about my upbringing, I never like fully bought into Catholicism. I never was just like a diehard Catholic or I never like truly like believed. I was always really envious of people who had just like that blind faith. But I remember looking around at, I mean, I had to go to mass twice a week for 10 years because I would go, I mean, not my, my family didn't go every Sunday and you know, my family wasn't super, super religious. Like I think they were just doing it more because like, that's just what the family does. You know, they were just trying to do the right thing and bring me up and give me morals. But um, school was a different story. School was, you know, we had catechism class every day for 10 years and we went to mass twice a week. So I just remember having these moments in mass where I would kind of zone out and be like meditating. And I would just look at the statues of Mary and just feel so sad for her. I would just be like, God, this just like, like, I think that I'm just somebody who's very deeply connected to the feminine wisdom and feminine meaning the body, feminine meaning the earth, you know, all the feminine mysteries. Um, and there was something intuitively in me that was really drawn to Mary. And I remember like even looking at statues of Jesus and in my head thinking like, okay, I'm not saying I don't believe in you, but like looking around, like, this is bullshit. Like, what is this? You know, like, it's like, there's something mystical here and I feel that. And then all the bullshit on top of it. So it was very confusing for me. And then of course, like this is the nineties, right? So super diet culture so I was also, I've also always been in a bigger body, you know, so it's like, I was kind of getting hit from all these different angles, um, you know, be a subservient woman, you're the servant of the man, um, you know, there, I never saw any examples, you know, especially being Catholic, like there's no example, you could be a nun or a sister, but you couldn't be a priest, you know, there was like a hierarchy there, um, you were supposed to be subservient, and the message that I got from, from culture then was like, I need my body to be very small. Right. So it's like in some ways there's this crossover where it's like I needed to be smaller. I needed to be more um, like dainty is the word that comes up, just kind of just not very powerful. And I was always like kind of a tomboy. You know, I just I got really shamed for being in a bigger body and for being like too dominant, for being too sexual. Um, and so it's just this, this dichotomy I live with my whole life. of Yeah, I don't really believe in this this philosophy. And yet I still absorbed all the shame around it. Like I kind of identified as like, you know, there's like the Madonna whore complex that a lot of women, I mean, everybody deals with in culture. And so I really identified for a long time as like the whore, the bad girl. Um, But then I also felt unworthy because of it. You know, it's like I had this defense mechanism that was just like, oh yeah, like fuck this. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't need to be a part of this religion. But then I would secretly be like, well, I'm not, I guess, I'm never going to be anyone's wife. You know, I'm not wife material because you're either, you're either the, the belief that I ha- held for so long was li- like unconsciously, of course, was 
you're either a woman that is beautiful and like a trophy wife and like worthy of being married and like AKA safe and secure, or you're the woman that the man cheats on his wife with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, that's taken years of therapy to even start to unravel, of course. Um, but because of the amount of shame, like not only the body shame, the religious shame, like all the shame that built up over time, I, entered high school and middle school with a lot of like a ton of anxiety, a lot of depression, um, did a lot of drugs, partied a lot and put myself into a lot of, you know, so I would say self objectifying situations. And I, I want to make a distinction that, you know, I don't even like the word promiscuous, but being a very sexually open woman uh, is very different to me than quote unquote self objectifying because for me, self-objectifying was, I was not in any way tuning into like my inner child. I was, it was all coming from this unconscious place of like, choose me. Like maybe if I hook up with this person, like they'll, they'll want to date me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, damn, this is for my pleasure. This, it was very much to be chosen by someone. And because of that, because I had like no self-esteem or self-worth, I let people take advantage of me. I put myself in really terrible situations that were really traumatizing um, and so by the time I was in my early twenties, I also had a child very young, um, you know, and so by the time I was in my early twenties, I had a lot of trauma racked up <laughs> from over the years, you could say, because that's what happens. Trauma is stored in the nervous system and stored in the body. And, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I, I don't, I didn't have a traumatic childhood, but what people don't understand is that there's different types of trauma, right? Like the, we use that word, and people think of, you know, a sexual assault or a car accident or a surgery or something that has to be like really big, but there's also more subtle forms of trauma that slowly build up in the nervous system over time. And those are people that just deal with kind of like chronic stress or anxiety. And so there's big T trauma and then there's little T trauma, but those little T traumas still add up. So when I say I racked it up by the time I was in my early twenties, um, it was definitely racked up. I was, a, I was kind of a mess. I had a lot of PTSD symptoms. I was just constantly, um, had no equanimity in my emotions at all. Like my emotions took me for roller coasters. Um, I was, you know, like I said, had panic attacks, things like that. And I just didn't trust anyone really. I didn't, I felt so disconnected from myself. I was kind of like a shell of a person. And so, um, you know, from there, it took me another really like seven years to find Tantra. And unfortunately I kind of got swept up, which a lot of traumatized people do in like the new age movement or like the, you know, the spiritual movement. Cause it, for me, it was like, I don't want religion. I definitely don't want religion, but I've also always been a very like mystical person. I've always been very into occult things. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm extremely connected to nature, you know? So it's like, I knew that there for me personally, my spiritual path um, had to align with nature in some way. So I started, you know, I, I started doing Reiki and I started getting into crystals and all these things. And, you know, I, I still use some of these tools, you know, I still do energy healing, but I just was so dissociated from my body that it became much more of just like, oh, just like go into the spirit realm, you know, and I was still ignoring where the healing needed to take place. Right. Right. So, you know, fast forward a few years, um, finally, was, I had, had had some bad experiences with therapy in the past, like religious therapists and religious counselors that did not really help me at all. So I was kind of 
not, I went, I've never been anti-therapy. I just never thought it would work for me. So thankfully I found some really great trauma-informed non-religious therapists that I work with and they really helped me a lot. But, um, you know, even after doing therapy for years, I was still having panic attacks and I was still like just feeling kind of like a mess all the time. And I think part of that was my environment. I wasn't, I was in a pretty codependent relationship at the time. And, um, you know, there was some re-traumatization that happened there as well. But, you know, what really sparked my interest about Tantra was that it was, you know, again, it was a yoga, like I had gotten into yoga. My therapist led me into yoga and was amazing. Um, but she kind of pointed out to me through, through, you know, so gently through my therapy that I really still had that dichotomy of like the Madonna horror complex. I had a lot of trust issues that I had to work through and like attachment wounding and all this stuff, because on a deep level, I still had that belief that like I wasn't worthy. And, you know, I was just so disconnected from my sexuality and from my power. And, you know, sexuality is just like any type of power, right? Like we can use it. It can be the most healing, the most connected, the most beautiful, satiating energy in the world. And it can also be extremely painful and traumatic and really damaging, you know? So I just felt like I needed to dive in. I felt like I needed to dive in the same way that the trauma came in. I had to go back into that realm and heal it using sexuality as the medicine. And that's what Tantra, especially the, the, the Institute of Authentic Tantra is where I was certified. And that's kind of like their slogan is, you know, pleasure is medicine. Hmm. And I, I really, you know, again, even though I never believed in the religion um, that I was raised in, I need, for me, I really wanted, and I really, um, it made me feel safe to have a container that did include spirituality because it, it, it's almost like a reclamation of just like, no, I knew this was sacred the whole fucking time. Like I knew my sexuality was sacred. I knew it was powerful. I knew it was magical. I knew it was sacred. I knew it was healing. And like, I had to reclaim that for myself. I feel like so many, I talk about uh, this with Aaron who does horror report with me all the time that like there was something about our sexuality, even within the context of a culture that thought it was bad and dirty and wrong. That was like, felt like the cleanest, almost most innocent, purest yes. part of us. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing too, like when you mentioned promiscuous, like I also didn't understand for a while how to reconcile the fact that I felt and thought and pretty much everyone around me recognized me as like the most sexual person in the group. And yet mm -hmm. I wasn't at all really promiscuous. Um, did you experience that as well? Like feeling like, you know, your sexuality and sexual embodiment, again, I guess this is going back to like what we were talking about at the beginning, like somehow separate from the actual sex that's being had. I mean, absolutely. Because really what people are feeling is your power, <laughs> you know, it's like mm. they're feeling your power. And if they are not comfortable in their power, then it's going to feel either threatening or it's going to feel, you know, people who are like, especially, you know, people who are trying to like suppress their sexuality, for example, or like, you know, don't, don't look at porn, like don't self-pleasure, like, you know, as, especially as, as in a female body, like in a religious upbringing, you're taught that like your body is sinful because it causes men to sin. Like they're, mm. they're like, you know, they're weak with their sexuality. Like don't tempt them as a, and like, what is that teaching men and boys 
about themselves, that they can't trust their own sexuality, like that they, they, they have no control over, which is bullshit. You know, we all have, we can all have control over our energy and our sexuality. Uh, but yeah, no, I definitely experienced that. I experienced that being in a bigger body too, and like developing sooner, like having breasts and having wide hips, you know, it's just like, I was, I became hypersexualized at a young age, even though I didn't have sex until I was 17. I didn't have intercourse, I should say, until I was like 17 or 18 years old. I was one of the last one of my friends to actually have intercourse. Um, and I, but oh, what's funny is like all of my friends would be, they would come to me for advice. Like, how do I give a blowjob? Like, and I was always that friend, you know, it's like always that friend. And I loved it. Like I love studying it. But unfortunately, like back then, a lot of my, you know, just like how many other people, a lot of my information was coming from like Cosmo magazine or like, you know, the cat house on HBO. Like I was like watching like random things that um, weren't necessarily trauma informed or, um, you know, the best sexual education, but it was, I mean, I grew up in Ohio. Like we only, I grew, I went to a public school and we only had, or a public high school, I should say. And we only had abstinence only education that was ran by a woman who was like a hardcore evangelical Christian, you know? So that was like, there was no anatomy class, you know, like we didn't have a lot of information, but, um, yeah, to go to circle back around to your original question. Yeah, I absolutely, um, experienced that where I was kind of hypersexualized, even though I wasn't actually having sex yet. Yeah. I'd love to talk about, this is a broad, complex topic, but in terms of like when we talk about female power or female sexuality, um, because I feel like there's this dual thing going on that we need to be cognizant of, or at least that I'm cognizant of, which is like one, I think obviously, especially like post-agriculturally, we've lived in this culture um, where the only value was like masculine power, right? Which I mm -hmm. think is different than feminine power. And I think in the sort of reclamation process of women trying to become powerful, I think they've done one thing, which is right, which is I think like being better at embodying their masculinity internally. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like we've lost sight of the difference between masculine and feminine power and that these energies while they can exist within us are still you know yin and yang like they're two things they sort of merge into each other and exist parallel um so if i'd love to hear your thoughts if uh you have them around like what that distinction is if you work with that distinction at all um in your practice or just in your in your personal life about like what does feminine power look like mm. well before I go into that I would just like to address the fact that with what you just spoke to and again this is I'm speaking in very binary language right now but because the world that we like the society is very binary we were trying to change that but especially like growing up you know when we did you know everything was color-coded like blue and pink you know it's just like very very gender gender binary I think that the the saddest thing that I um, can can speak to that is that I feel like traditionally men, you know, throughout patriarchy have been very castrated from their emotions and their emotional body and their ability to be soft and to be held and to be vulnerable. And I think women have been castrated from their power, their sexuality, like they're feeling like they can, you know, they're in control of their life and their circumstances and their bodies, you know. Um, so having said that, I think that, you know, uh, there's a lot of 
women or people who identify as women who are really trying to reclaim that sense of feminine power. And ironically, actually being very masculine about it, right? Like being very like dominant or like dominating because it's still coming from a unprocessed, traumatized place. So, I mean, like think about like if you believe in epigenetics, epigenetic trauma, like how many lifetimes of DNA do we hold in our bodies of being, you know, assaulted and kidnapped and raped, you know, like all these things. Um, And so, yeah, there's, fuck yeah, there's anger there. Like there's rage, like, and we should not try to tiptoe around that rage. However, I think in its essence, and this, again, this is just my opinion. I'm sure other people might have a different opinion, but from my experience, the most powerful part of feminine energy is compassion. That's, it's that ability to be the, the container to like hold a a safe space and to offer love and compassion and nurturance. Um, I don't want to pigeonhole femininity to be like the nurturer though. So I, I try to be careful about that because obviously like mother nature can be fierce as hell. Like, look at what's going on in the world right now. Look at, you know, so it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that there aren't archetypes of feminine energy um, in nature that are very ferocious, like mothers eat their young, you know, like there isn't like, there's a lot of fierceness and femininity and power in that. Um, but I think in terms of a reclamation, it's being able to be yin and to be soft and to be vulnerable. It's like, that's what I think everybody wants to come back to on some level. So it's like, I think men are have to, men are going to have a harder time because socially they've been taught, like, again, they've been kind of castrated and taught not to be that because it's weak, right? Like it's weak to be vulnerable. It's weak to be in and soft. Um, and for women on the, on the flip side, it's like we were conditioned over thousands of years to think it's not safe to stand in our power. It's not safe to be sexual. Cause you know, if we're, if um, it's not safe, we're not allowed to have sovereignty over it. It's like, it, it's belong, it's, it belongs to somebody else or it's in somebody else's um, power or control of like what we do with our bodies. So I'm not sure if that answered your question or yeah, not. Yeah, for sure. And I agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's complicated. Like we, there's no way to have this conversation without just like truly embracing the nuance of it all. Um, but I think, you know, the, to me, like female power is that sort of same, it's like sort of, it's trust. It's like relinquishing Mm -hmm. it's, it's vulnerability, like surrender. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to, I guess, categorize or frame what I feel like is feminine power would probably be vulnerability, which is Mm -hmm. inherently vulnerable and therefore can Mm -hmm. be abused and taken advantage of and which it has. Um, but I, I feel so passionately about like, and obviously this, this will engage both this engages the masculine or those who identify as men to like hold space for that and to actually be trustworthy to actually be a safe container for someone to relinquish control Mm -hmm. or feel protected or any of those things. Um, but I just, I feel, I feel like almost on every episode of my podcast that like something comes back to this about how we can reclaim or rebuild these, um, different types of energies that I feel like, you know, there's the shadow aspect of them and the healthy aspect of mm-hmm. them. Um, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that, um, you know, in, in my coaching work that I do with people, 
I, I love bringing up the idea of like the anima and the animus, especially when I'm working. I mean, I mainly work with women or female identifying clients. I do have some male clients, but mainly my work is with women. And I love working, doing the animus work with them because I, you know, obviously like we talked about this other day, like you can only, you can't be a victim and be empowered at the same time. Right. Like it's impossible. And so I think that because of how binary the world is and the culture is that, you know, perhaps that's like some of the deepest underlying reasons for rape culture. Like if a man has been like castrated from their emotions, right? They're not allowed to be soft. They're not allowed to be sensual. They're not allowed to be vulnerable. What do they do? They project it onto women. Like Mm -hmm. woman is the source of this, right? Instead of going within connecting to their own feminine essence, it becomes something they have to get from somewhere else. Okay. And so on the flip side then with women or female identifying people, it's the same where, Oh, I need a protector. I need someone to take care of me. Um, you know, it can also be like, basically what I do with my clients is we go through and we, we understand, first of all, the anima and the animus is a Carl Jung. Um, that's Carl Jung's description for like the inner masculine energy or the inner feminine energy. And so he, he believed that every woman has like an inner masculine and every man has an inner feminine. And we're constantly projecting that onto lovers and onto people and partners all the time. And so the idea, like what I walk, you know, mainly again, I work with women. So when I'm walking women through this process, we go over like, what, what is the, what is the true animus? You know, is it like, what, like, if you think of like, what's your ideal lover? Like, what, what are the, what are the things that you wish you could do? Like change your own oil, you know, change your car tires, like fix your house. Like these things that are traditionally like male jobs, like we can learn those things too. You know, we don't have to depend on a man. We don't have to depend on a man for, for money. You know, obviously this is privilege, right? Like, of course, some people do have to depend on other people for money, but I'm just saying in a, in a balanced, perfect world, when we're just talking about energy, and becoming embodied in our power, you know, we don't have to depend on somebody else for that. So part of it is looking and understanding like, where did the animus get um, very distorted and like wounded, right? So that can, that can come up, especially people that have been abused, that the voice of the wounded animus then is, um, you know, the internal um, cat and nine tailing yourself, like your internal, um, drill sergeant, you know, the part of you that's like really critical of yourself. Um, it can be the part of you that wants to like start a project. And then all of a sudden you just like never finish it. You know, you like lose that inertia to like put yourself out in the world because that's what masculinity is. It's like, how are we showing up in society? What, what do I want to do? What kind of, um, you know, empire do I want to build for myself? How do I want to function in, in the real world? And then the feminine is more of like home family connection, Um, And so that's what, you know, men have been taught to seek fulfillment through what I just said, like being out in the world, making money, um, having a legacy. And then women are taught that their fulfillment comes from, you know, relationships, love, being a parent, you know, being a mother, having children. Um, And, you know, I was working with my mentor and therapist who I'm, I'm a love. Her name is Allie. And she you know, she brought to my attention that it's really neither of those things for no matter what your gender is, because what fulfillment really comes from self-actualization. 
it comes from the merging of both of those energies into one. And that's what Tantra is all about too, is like, it's not about just focusing on only polarity. It's how do we, how do we unite these polarities so that each person, regardless of gender has that inner sacred marriage, you could say, or that inner union of both masculine and feminine. And then you show up in relationship as a full and complete being versus needing this other person to complete you in some way. Right. For sure. And I think like within that healing process, I love that you brought up that thing about projection because I totally agree. Um, and I think in the healing process, like also being mindful of going back to making sure we're integrating and embodying both. It's like, just because vulnerability was taken advantage of doesn't mean that it's not something that we should still embody. Like, let's not project, let's not continue to do that. Right. So I'm too afraid to be vulnerable now. So men, like you do all the emotions and I'm going to be in charge and the future is female and all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, And in the inverse as well, like, you know, um, there is, there are positive aspects of femininity when embodied by a woman or someone that identifies as a woman and masculinity Mm -hmm. within someone that identifies as a man. Um, and I don't think actually, we can have a healthy integration of either one internally unless like they're both like we can't practice, you know, like if we bring up, let's say like BDSM, for example, I think there's a misunderstanding. Um, like you, you can't practice healthy submissiveness unless you're fully embodied in your power and your hundred percent completely agree with that yeah yeah and it it makes it where if if you are conscious of that process and you bring awareness into you know power play and bdsm and all these things like that is tantra you're weaving awareness and healing into that practice which makes it a really transformative and empowering experience Um, versus if you're not aware of it, there might still be a part of you that might be getting re-traumatized or, you know, and again, like it's all, it's all an experiment and an exploration. So re-traumatization does happen sometimes, but yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I also think it's, you know, it's really important to recognize that the more as a woman, as because I identify as a woman, the more that I own my power and I stop feeling like a victim, which means I put up healthy boundaries for myself. I don't let people take advantage of me. I have more discernment about who to be vulnerable with. So it's not like I'm just, you know, going to put all critical thinking to the side. Um, But the more that I can show up in my power, that allows any, you know, any men in my life or like masculine people in my life to trust themselves. So especially when you're talking about power play or BDSM, like if I show up and I feel like, yes, I want to be submissive right now. Again, what I was saying before is like, what, what is it teaching men and boys about how like their sexuality and power? If everyone's like, Oh, women need to hide themselves because they're going to tempt men. It's like, as if they're just some wild animals that like can't control their urges. I don't think that that's true. I think that that's true for some people who might have a lot of trauma and have a very distorted sexuality. But for the most part, you know, I think that the more that women can be in their own power and stop blaming everything on men um, or on like male, like masculine energy, like, you know, women can absolutely embody toxic masculinity. Like it's not, it's just an energy, right? It's, It's power over in like not a healthy way, like dominating and not a consensual way. And so I think that, um, yeah, I just think that the more that women can own their power, that's also going to allow the space for men to be vulnerable. 
because they feel safe enough to do so. They they don't they don't have to feel guilty about being you know questioning all the time if they're gonna if they're a perpetrator. You know, it's 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 not it's not that simple or it's not that black and white. Yeah. Is it possible? I would love to like switch gears and talk about the whole like how you engage with the elements in Tantra in regard to all of this. Is there some sort of like relatively um, simple, simple way to sort of describe how each of those relates to your work and to these practices? Because I'd love to like tie in nature in a more sort of comprehensive way. Absolutely. Okay. So the Tibetan five element meditations that I teach, um, they are thousands of years old. So these are the same, they are seemingly very simple meditations. Um, but the whole idea is that every time you engage with the element or the energy of that element, you know, for me, the more, the, the more that I engage with them, the deeper my relationship builds with them. And so for example, like if I'm building a fire now, you know, I used to just like, I've always loved building fires. I've always been in like a huge hippie nature, nature free. Um, <laughs> I'm good at it too. Yeah, me too. Um, it's our past lives as Vestal virgins, probably. 100%. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but now when I engage with nature, it's just, it makes it so much more, there's so much more of like a personality and an aliveness in nature that comes out now. So if you look at how, how disconnected, you know, everyone, like so many people are not only from the planet, but also from our bodies. So the whole idea is that when we engage with the elements through these practices within our own body, we start to form a a personal relationship with the different elements. And the reason we teach them one at a time, like moving up the chakra system in the body is that we, I want each of, I want my clients to have, you know, at least a week or two to engage with each specific element at a time, because you can really feel the difference. Um, and you can really feel, for example, like fire, earth, and water are the elements that make up most of, you know, my birth chart, for example, like the energy that I embody, the archetypes that I embody. And so when I tune into those energies, I tune in very quickly. I drop in, I can, it's really powerful. I can see the visualizations, the colors a lot more vibrantly. And then with air, I have less of that in my natal energy, you know, so that's one that I work, I try to work with more often because, um, I have a harder time visualizing it. I have a harder time engaging with the energy because it's not my dominant nature. Um, and again, they're, they're very seemingly simple practices, but they're always going deeper. And, you know, again, when I walk through the woods now, I just, I feel the consciousness alive in nature. And it, it reminds me that I am intrinsically connected to this planet and that. Um, I don't want to be dissociative. I want to be fully engaged with the intelligence that's alive in nature. Um, and I think that the reason I feel so passionate about it is because I feel so passionate about wanting to save our planet. You know, it's like, if, and our bodies, you know, it's like, we're all, we're all like so many talking heads walking around and it's nobody's fault. You know, I don't, I don't place blame on people for that. I think that the world is not very trauma informed, unfortunately. And there's so many, whether, whether you have trauma or you're just completely dissociated from technology or being overworked or stressed out, it's, it's one thing to, to know and process in the mind and analyze. And it's another to feel in the body and to have a physical connection to nature in the body. It's almost like a sixth sense that we're having to remember how to use. And I think that's feminine power. 
is that intuitive feeling based sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and sort of circling back to the beginning of our conversation too, like I, something that I feel like I'm only now actually really starting to understand and be able to do is this idea of like, you know, investigating, um, something in the body instead of like cerebrally. So, uh, you know, when I get stuck in like anxiety loops, for example, it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm identifying it and, um, processing it because I'm thinking exactly about like what the thing is that I'm afraid of and why and how it's going to play out and all of this. Um, and, and what really needs to happen is like, oftentimes that anxiety is being triggered by something right now in my life, but the Mm -hmm. emotionality of it is, you know, leftover from past experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and by sort of going into those anxiety loops and not like feeling it in my body and internally, it's like, that's the pain I'm trying to avoid. I think I'm feeling the pain because I'm like thinking about it and analyzing it. Mm -hmm. Um, but really it has no name and no description. It's just a feeling. Um, which, you know, when you said you, you know, walk through nature and sort of experiencing, experience all of these things internally, it's also why I feel like, like archetypes and astrology was so important to me because it's so much easier to understand things. I feel like from an energetic perspective, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, um, and I definitely am the type of person that is highly, you know, loves to intellectualize and, um, and not that that's bad, but in terms of, I think, processing or healing, especially like trauma, um, or getting more in touch with my emotions that experiencing things like in terms of their natural element or their archetype is so much more healing. Um, and just makes a lot more intuitive sense too. I feel like, yeah, this is why when I, whenever I count, like do coaching with anyone, whether it's couples or individuals, the, the first thing that I start off with is helping people find resources, you know, for grounding and like feeling safe in the body and I teach them about polyvagal theory, which is the theory of the nervous system, um, you know, because we have our window of tolerance, which is when you're safe and you feel social and you, and that's where you, that's where like real connection happens is when you, you know, you feel safe in your body. You're not in like an anxious stimulated space. Um, but that anxiety loop that you're talking about, yeah, that's a, most of it's past conditioning. That's just, again, it builds up in the body. It builds up in the nervous system and it also builds up in the psyche too. So I'm just a big believer that it's, it's not, you know, I would never say like, oh, these somatic therapies or the somatic practice is a replacement for therapy and for analyzing, because we do need to, you know, in some way rationally understand and process what happened to us. Um, but for example, like when you get stuck in a, in an anxious state, that's your signal that you're in a hyper aroused state. That's that you're in the sympathetic fight, you know, fight flight nervous system. And so I love teaching about the nervous system because I really like that it takes the morality and judgment out of it. Um, So, you know, I can stop shaming myself for feeling so anxious and having tunnel vision because that's literally what that part of my brain is designed to do, right? So, and we want that. We don't want to just, you know, it wouldn't be healthy for our nervous system to be in one state all the time anyway, because if there's a tiger running after you, or if you're walking across the street and a bus is coming after you, yeah, you want to have tunnel vision. You want to be able to think quickly and move quickly. The problem is, is when you get stuck, or I don't know if you're familiar with like fawn mode, fawn, learning about fawn mode, like totally changed my life. But yeah, I want you to talk about it. You mentioned that the other day and I wanted you to, yeah. 
so, <laughs> so, so fawn mode is, um, a, is actually a trauma response. And I always thought like, I'm just such a nice person, you know, like I'm so giving and like whatever, but I was like, oh my God, I'm a total fawn. And fawn is a symptom of being in a dorsal vagal uh, nervous system state, which is actually like the freeze response. And so it's, it's kind of like that walking on eggshells, like, what can I do to make sure this person doesn't get angry with me? Or how can I earn my seat at the table of belonging by like serving other people? You know, it's not coming from this empowered, um, my cup runneth over and I want to share, you know, that's, that's real generosity. You know, generosity is when you're overflowing with love and you want to share that with other people. Fawning is when you are coming from a place of disempowerment feeling afraid, feeling shut down. It's survival. It's like, because connection is a basic human need, you know? So it's like, we're doing everything we can to get connection. Um, and so, yeah, fawning is definitely, uh, <laughs> I'm definitely a recovering fawn is what I tell everyone. So I, I love working with other recovering fawns because it, yeah, just, it was really easy to circling back around to like why I even brought up the nervous system thing is it, I think it takes the morality out of our human behavior a little bit. Like, of course we need to be accountable for our human behavior. But for example, if you live with someone with anger issues, for example, it doesn't mean that you don't need to have boundaries. It doesn't mean that you don't need to protect yourself. It doesn't mean that you let people walk all over you, but instead of condemning them as the devil or this evil person who's like doing, he's a perpetrator and I'm the victim. You know, it's so easy to get lost in that. If you can step back and be like, oh my God, that person's in a habitual fight flight response. That person's nervous system is constantly hyper aroused. They're constantly in overdrive. This is where ir irritation, irritability, anger, outbursts happen. And so, right. You still need to put up boundaries. You still need to protect yourself. Um, but I'm just not a believer. I believe that every human being has the, the potential to create good or evil at any moment. And it's our job to not shame ourselves or other people, but to learn how to understand our bodies and our systems better. So in the same with sexuality, it's the same thing. It's like you yield the sword, right? Like you have to, you have to understand and have reverence and respect the power that we have. And that's what makes it empowering is because it's like, I could cause harm to this person right now but instead I'm going to choose to take good care of myself I'm going to choose to take good care of my body so that I can maintain that window of tolerance in my nervous system so I'm thinking clearly I'm grounded I'm you know because when we go into a hyper aroused state we also get tunnel vision which is like there's no way there's only one way out there's only one way out and that's not really the case when, when we're in our window of tolerance the the prefrontal cortex of the brain is online and we can see all these different possible outcomes for things. We, we can engage in emotionally intelligent conversations, you know? So if, if you're, if you're dealing with a person who has um, anxiety or anger issues or thing, or is shut down, depressed, you know, having compassion for like, this is this person's physical body. That's, you know, it, it, obviously it all ties into our mental and emotional bodies as well. But, um, you know, basically what I'm getting to is that there's no point of trying to have like an emotionally intelligent, open, heartfelt conversation with someone who's in a sympathetic nervous system response. So the first step is figuring out, okay, where am I on my ladder right now? How can I get closer to this safe and social window of tolerance? And then you do the unpacking, then you do the, the emotional processing. But until you get to that safe space, you're not dealing with the full person and you yourself are not your full you know, your full self. So 
Yeah. That was kind of a tangent, but <laughs> no, I loved it. Yeah. I always wish, I mean, I always think about like in re- relation to let's say the me too movement to like take that whole right. concept yeah. and idea and broaden it to the entire way that like we engage with one another about these things because well and also religion too like the devil made me do it oh did the devil make you do it or was that like years of in lifetimes of unprocessed trauma that then oozed out the sides you know it's yeah speaking (laughs) of the devil let's segue into Lilith oh (laughs) perfect segue (laughs) um yeah so obviously your business is Lilith and Lavender I think obviously like Lilith is I think one of also the main reasons we connected I think we both identify a lot with that archetype um and uh you know obviously as far as any sort of like story or myth goes it's open to a myriad of different interpretations Mm -hmm. um and uh she is in particular I think the one that I feel like has been not even necessarily misrepresented, but like, I feel like her archetype has been portrayed in much less of a nuanced way than I feel like it actually is. Um, but all that to say, I'm really curious to hear like what your relation to, how do you experience Lilith? How do you see her, um, as an archetype? Great question. Yes. I love Lilith and my relationship with her is always um, growing and expanding and evolving because, because there's so, so many different myths and so many different ways to approach her. Um, I would say that, you know, if you, if you Google Lilith's story, like most of the time, what immediately arises, like my daughter is being homeschooled because of the pandemic right now. And she was playing this game and one of the characters was named Lilith. And it was literally like mother of demons, you know, just like (laughs) succubus. I mean, it's obviously her fifth year old fifth grade game did not say succubus but that's 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 what you're gonna get is that she's like the mother of demons she's this this like you know the succubus this like this satanic witch whatever um the one thing about that is that they are in those stories acknowledging her sexual power her sexual essence she is sexual energy in its essence that cannot be tamed and therefore she's a demon she's the mother of demons right So the myth that I resonate more with, or the story that I resonate more with, is this idea that Lilith was Adam's, in the Garden of Eden myth, that she was Adam's first partner, Adam's first wife, and that she refused to be subservient to Adam. (laughs) So she's basically like the first feminist, I guess you could say. Um, I know some people don't like resonate with that word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, So she left she chose to leave the garden she did not get banished or kicked out from the garden she chose to leave the garden instead of submitting and then she was you know free to wander alone for the rest of eternity i guess and i to me she represents that primordial feminine sexual power that has been denied or repressed due to dogma religion and culture and I believe that no matter what gender you identify as or what body, you know, what, whatever genitals you carry, you have feminine fire in you. You have that, that primordial life force expression within you. And most all of us, whether it's this lifetime or others, if you believe in that, <laughs> or again, if you don't believe in past lives and these things, I, I always tell people it's just epigenetic trauma that's been proven. So our trauma that gets carried through DNA. So call it what you want. Um, 
but we all have wounding, you know, the, especially in the West, like there's so, I mean, I don't want to say that it's literally everywhere in the world now. It's there's even secular culture has, has been infiltrated by this religious indoctrination and this um, Madonna whore complex and, you know, sexual repression. And so my relationship with Lilith and, you know, why I name my business after Lilith is this idea that I believe that we are capable of reclaiming and healing this archetype. I believe that these archetypes are very much alive within nature and alive within our own experience, and we can actually connect and work with them. And so, um, you know, I, if, even if you, even if Lilith is the quote unquote, the mother of demons, right? What happens if you take, say a cat, <laughs> right? And you put it in the closet for thousands of years when you open that door, what do you think that cat's going to do? It's going to freak out, right? It's going to ooze out like that, that energy, that primordial force and sexuality is going to have distortions there. It's going to be ferocious and fierce because it's been denied and suppressed and abandoned, you know? So there's wounding that happens. And I think that, our, you know, for me, my path with Lilith has been acknowledging what is, what is the like emotional runoff from the trauma? Like, where, where do I have rage? Where do I have abandonment wounds? Where do I have fear? Like all these shadows. And how can I, with compassion, greet them, transmute them, and then allow her to be empowered again? You know, and that's, again, through my sexual practices, through using my creativity, through, you know, connecting with my body, regardless of what size I am, you know, things like that. Um, because that's all feminine. <laughs> all of those things are feminine. So, yeah, yeah. I think about too. Like, I wonder. Going back to this whole idea of promiscuity, too. Like, I often see. I don't think women are um, all of the time acknowledging of how their power can be used negatively as well, right? Because mm. I think we are so used to like the man being the dominator and um, being the abuser and, you know, women that are like, well, I don't fucking agree with the institution or marriage of marriage. So I'm just going to like fuck people's husbands. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just Mm going to have babies. I'm like, right. Like there is something about Lilith that I feel like embodies like the whole demonization of her perhaps to me, there's something actually resonate with around the shadow expression of that power, because let's be honest, like, if women aren't, you know, acknowledging the extent of that power that they have, you know, mm-hmm. I would say any sort of codependent, toxic situation I've been engaged in, like, I was a part of that dance. Mm-hmm. Like, I've definitely used my sexuality to get things. Like, I've <laughs> used my sexuality to hurt people, right? Um, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, so I see, you know, I guess that's what I said about like the nuance. Like I sort of see that shadowy element of female sexuality present in Lilith as well. Um, and I think about like, what if she had stayed and like she and Adam worked it out? Cause that's also the myth that I resonate <laughs> the most. Cause I feel like Adam and Eve, it's like, that's the patriarchy. I feel like, like sure. wait a second, like what if she'd stayed like, how could that have worked, right? Like, how could Or what if there have... was a balance of power? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to me. Like, I always try to, like, rewrite that story in my head. Like, how would have that, how would, how would have that convo gone? Like, 
Well, I think that's awesome because I, like I said, I really believe that these archetypes are very much alive in nature. And so when I think it's awesome to think of the idea of rewriting history and rewriting the myths, because what if we are rewriting them? For sure. Right? Like what if that's part of our evolution? <laughs> like what if that's how humans are evolving is rewriting these myths and these stories and how, how we um, are interacting with each other and what you said makes, I completely 100% resonate with that because when women are using their feminine power to cause harm, where is that coming from in us? That's coming from a disempowered place of like, again, power over, like I have to dominate and control, manipulate because underneath that, what's there? Like, I, I just, I guess I, I'm of the philosophy that I do believe that humans are inherently good. I know that might be so naive of me, but like, I, be, I believe we all have like our inner Buddha nature, you know? And so if there is this, the shadow coming out to me, that signals that's where a wound is. And so, um, you know, if things were balanced, if we were coming from a, a place of equanimity and respect and reverence for all, you know, for both sides of the coin, we wouldn't have to manipulate and dominate. We, there, it's like, there's this idea of, scare, it's really scarcity, I think is what it boils down to. And like, obviously with the mother wound stuff and sister wounding, there's like so much of that scarcity um, that's still in, that we carry in our bodies and, and culture. But uh, the idea that more for you is less for me, I think has to go. I think it needs to be more for you is more for me. You know, like more power for you is a reflection of my own beauty and power. Right. And as women, we can empower each other and then empower other people versus like the patriarchy is like, well, if she's beautiful or she's sexual, she's more powerful and therefore is more safe or secure. And that's the old shit. That's the old story that we're all, you know, hopefully trying to heal out of our bodies and out of our psyche so that we can evolve and change the myth. Right. Yeah. And recognize that power can be balanced and also not look identical, right? Like totally to broaden the definition of power, not just for men and women, but for individual people, right? Like mm -hmm. what's powerful for you is different than me and um, not shame each other for whatever that looks like for an individual, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the last sort of thing I'd like to talk about uh, when, when we were finally getting to the point where you're like, okay, okay, I'll come on your podcast. Um, you said something like, so can we just talk about how like, I don't know anything and I'm just like relearning everything as I go. And, um, and I thought that was such like, I think maybe you were joking, but I was like, no, I wasn't, I was definitely yeah. not joking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Um, I would like to talk about like what that is. You know, I think one of the, um, themes that, uh, pops up in this podcast quite a bit is this process of, you know, evolving and growing and realizing we were wrong about something. And I've certainly made the mistake many times, which I'm trying not to anymore, which is like, I made this decision and I need to be loyal to that decision. And I can't mm -hmm. change my mind because that's weak. And obviously what I've learned is that the inverse is true. The, the strength is in being like, okay, like this is another disintegration of self. I'm going to redefine myself right now. I'm going to, um, you know, be quote unquote born again to some extent. And mm -hmm. that's a humbling process and a vulnerable process, but I think a necessary one. Um, so I'd love to, you know, speak to that, especially from the perspective of a counselor, right? Which I feel like there's this idea that 
you know, you're the authority and you've been initiated and you know, any, everything, um, like how have you dealt with that process? Uh, and what did you mean by, you know, you know, I don't really know anything and I'm just learning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first I would say that my biggest red flag with anyone these days is if they think they know the way I usually am pretty turned off by that because I just, I have been humbled so many times. <laughs> I'm just like, eh, you might know the way for right now, but that <laughs> might change. Um, in my own journey, you know, again, where there is trauma, there tends to be a lot of coping mechanisms. And one of my coping mechanisms was definitely control. <laughs> how can I control? How can I control this so this won't happen again? You know, what, what can I do to be safe? And so, and that's also a mindset, you know, it's not just about certain like day-to-day things I'm controlling or people I'm controlling. It's beliefs about myself, beliefs that I believe keep me safe. You know, I have the golden ticket. I'm getting into heaven, you know, like these types of belief systems that, you know, don't always hold up in the real world. So I am a firm believer that healing is not a linear process and that there is no other side of the quote unquote healing journey. Um, I think that we're, it's, it's, we're constantly evolving. I don't think evolution ever stops. And so I think it's really naive to think that, you know, you're going to all of a sudden reach this specific, you know, state of enlightenment and then stop growing from there. I think, I think enlightenment is really just the first step. And then you go back and you serve others from that state of being more enlightened. And I also think enlightenment is an experiential state that it's possible to move in and out of. It doesn't necessarily mean you're just going to be stuck there. It just means, for that moment, you're free of suffering, right? <laughs> and if you get really good at it, maybe you can have many moments where you're free, <laughs> free of suffering or have a calm nervous system is what I always tell people. Maybe enlightenment is just a calm nervous system. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's linear at all. And I think that, you know, the way that I even approach my coaching work is I, I really, I don't resonate with my mentor and my therapist is always like, you have to kind of reclaim that word teacher for yourself, Mackenzie. Like you, you are a teacher, you are able to teach people. Um, but I have this, I have such a repulsion to like the guru complex and like the, the religious authority, because that's where so much of my wounding came from. And I see it all the time, you know, people who are very disembodied sit, you know, standing on their soapbox, giving their two cents and preaching their, you know, their truth. That's only their truth. You know, so I really resonate much more with the word facilitator. And I really believe that all I am doing in this, you know, when I'm facilitating safe space or, you know, connection with, for other people or intimate, intimate spaces with other people is holding up a mirror, right? Like I think a good therapist, or I mean, obviously I'm not a therapist, a good therapist, a good coach, a good counselor, anybody in one of those space holding positions is going to lead that person back to their own bodily wisdom, their own emotional wisdom. Like, how does that feel when you say it? You know, like, what does that feel in your body? What does that bring up for you? Instead of just like preaching at people and like teaching them, like, this is the way, this is the only way, like monogamy is the only way or polyamory is the only way of like having these boxes that we're trying to like, say like, this is right, this is wrong. I just think it's all bullshit. I think everything's a gray area. Um, I think that because we are ever evolving, what resonates with us at the time is also going to 
always change and evolve. And so I think that the best thing that I have found for myself is just to be really humble about that. Um, I'm, you know, I, I try not to share too much of like my stuff in session with people because people are paying for that time for themselves. And I want to be there to have, you know, uh, give them my full attention. But, you know, when I'm in therapy, I always really appreciate when my therapist opens up a little bit and is like, Hey, you know, like I totally resonate with that. Like this happened to me before. And I responded this way. It gives me, it provides a really beautiful reflection. And I think so, like, I think reflections are extremely powerful. I think, I think some people, um, heal better in that situation than others. So you have to find a counselor, a coach or a therapist that works for you. But for me personally, this idea of, um, you know, I facilitate a lot of like women's circles and stuff. And one of the things I always bring up is that I find it so much more powerful for myself and my own healing. And also like for the group mind that forms or like the group space that we are all here sitting next to each other. Like I am not here sitting on a platform teaching at you. I am here as your reflection. We're on the same journey of unraveling. We all have patriarchal conditioning, right? Like none of us have <laughs> come out of the last thousands of years unscathed from this conditioning. And so like, let's be humble about that. Let's like, hey, we have a sister one come up. We have some jealousy come up. Let's talk about that. Like it's not our fault ultimately that the scarcity is there how can we bring this into the middle of the circle and we discuss it together and allow it to like transmute and heal versus thinking like, oh, well, I'm the healer and you're the student or I'm the teacher and you're the student, you know? And it's like, I, you know, again, I'm not saying that people who identify as a teacher are bad or are, are, I'm sure a lot of them are very good teachers. That's just, it's not like my personal medicine, I guess you could say. Like, I feel like my personal medicine that I bring into groups and into my coaching is very much just like, Hey, we're in this together. Like I'm just here to be a sounding board. I'm here to be a reflection. I'm here to hold up a mirror for you. And I really, I really love giving people tools and practices and reflections that remind them of their own ability to be self-empowered. And I, I'll use the example of like, I used to do a lot more energy healing and Reiki, which I still do some of those things, but um, I still facilitate those sessions but I love being able to give people like practices that they can then take home and do themselves because I used to have to like kind of set boundaries with people sometimes because they would, it's like people that get addicted to psychics, you know, they, they really believe like, Oh, I have to go to this person for the answer. I have to go to this person for the answer. And people would come to me because, you know, Reiki and energy healing is really just co-regulation. It's like, I'm helping this person go into a meditative state, calming their nervous system, giving them calm energy and touch, allowing them to relax in the body. So yeah, that's great. I still love doing that for people, but I also want to give them tools to be able to do it themselves because that's empowerment. You know, instead of them getting addicted to my co-regulation, how can I give them tools to take this home? So again, I, I just went on like a total tangent about that, I guess, but um, yeah, I, I just really don't believe it's linear. And I think the more that we can embrace the fact that healing is not linear, the more compassion and empathy we can have, like, especially if you wake up and you're having a shitty day and you're like, God, like, didn't I already work on this? Like so many times in therapy, like what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And you know, that, that shame, Tara, Tara Brock is one of my favorite um, yeah. teachers. She's, I fucking love her. She is amazing. <laughs> but I love the idea that she always talks about the double arrow. And the first arrow is like, obviously arrows shooting into our chest going to cause suffering, right? So the first arrow is the idea that 
anytime we feel a quote unquote negative emotion, it's causing us suffering. And then the double arrow that we shoot ourselves with is we shame ourselves for having that emotion to begin with. So at least we can alleviate that double arrow. So in this healing process, that's not linear, that's going to be different, you know, cyclically or by the day or by the week or by the month, um, honoring the fact that our bodies, because trauma stored in the nervous system and the tissues of the body, it might be on a little bit of a different timeline than the mind, right? Like you can, go, again, you can go to therapy for years and be like, okay, I rationally, logically understand that I was abused, that I had this happen to me, that I'm safe now, but my, my human animal body has, is going through a different process. And that, that human animal body needs time and needs safe space, key, needs to have a safe space to be in that safe and social window of tolerance in order to then process and discharge the trauma that was stored in the tissues. So imagine just like, oh, I wake up, I've been functioning and I've been having a great week and I wake up tomorrow and I'm just sobbing and I feel horrible. Like imagine just being able to hold yourself and be like, it's okay. You know, like it's okay that, um, you know, I, I thought that I dealt with this and, you know, I didn't. And really it's an invitation to go deeper too, because I don't think it's that you haven't quote unquote dealt with it. I think it's that um, it's always going deeper. And so you had to be in the safe enough space to go deeper is the key. So the sign that you are feeling pain means that you're actually in that process of releasing the pain. If you're not feeling pain, you're not processing emotions ever, that's probably because you're either um, dissociative or in a hyper aroused state and you're constantly go, 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 and you're not allowing yourself to process. So, um, yeah, I'm just all about alleviating as much shame and holding as much compassion for that process as possible. So, yeah, I love what you said about pain too, and the invitation. Um, like, I feel like we have a misunderstanding of this whole triggered thing sometimes right. where it's like, people are like, oh, I'm triggered. I'm going to run away now. It's like, no, no. Like that was like, a light switch went on so you could see something like let's investigate right. that like you know really realizing the you know positive aspects of like moving into fear or pain mm -hmm. or grief and like seeing what's there well I um, think with grief and pain particular people those emotions are so intense that it feels like it will annihilate you yes if you actually <laughs> let yourself feel it but unfortunately or fortunately the only way to process that is to go through it. And so that's, you know, I think that that's um, another reason I feel so passionate about the work that I'm doing is because I just want to tell people like your emotions won't actually kill you if you let yourself feel them. What kills you faster is if you let it build up in your body for 30 years and then get diseases or have, you know, just have no emotional equanimity at all because you're all over the place because you're not actually letting yourself process anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you brought up, brought up uh, Tara Brock because I feel like I listen to her so frequently at like the beginning of my, like, her. yeah, <laughs> like just her voice alone. Like she could be saying nothing <laughs> <Totally. laughs> like, okay, I'm totally calm now. Yeah, um, her whole thing about like rain, the like mm -hmm. recognition, awareness, investigate, nurture. I, I teach all of my clients that practice. I always send them her meditations because it's such a good emotional processing technique. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I feel like I said at the beginning, that thing about investigating that like you know, she always says like the biggest mistake everyone makes in terms of that is thinking that that's like a, you know, intellectual process mm -hmm. somehow, mm -hmm. the investigation when it's really a bodily process. Um, yeah. I also like the, the point you, you said something about like, I just want to be a mirror and 
before we started recording, I was like trying to explain this question that I thought I maybe you would ask that I didn't ask around um, that sort of like, or I guess we talked about it a bit, the sort of like co-process of growth that's happening in any sort of a, you know, um, client counselor relationship, but really any relationship. Like I feel like it was, it's un, it's undeniable for me, like when I was giving astrology readings and now with this podcast that like, if we are drawn to people and start, um, you know, interacting with people, whether that's like a friend or a partner or a podcast guest or a therapist, if we're like approaching that in an authentic, intuitive way, like we're both mirrors from each other. Like, it's amazing mm-hmm. to me that I'm like, I'm just going to have this person on my podcast. And I was like, that was a fucking therapy session, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> And the same with when I was like giving readings too, it was like, I guess I'm supposed to be holding this space for you, but like, you're saying all sorts of shit that's making me, you know, learn and realize things that I hadn't really thought about before. And I think that's like the, the beauty of it, that just sort of like humility of the whole thing that we're just like people interacting with each other and learning from each other, even if on the surface, that relationship has some sort of a, you know, um, authoritative or you know power value added aspect to it yeah I think I actually wrote a post recently about this because I've been thinking about it a lot and how I I wish that we understand I feel like that word projection in general gets so much negative connotation to it and rightfully so because a lot of times when people are projecting I mean we're always projecting all the time So when a lot of times when people are projecting, it's very unconscious. And so we're projecting sometimes a lot of negative things onto people and then we're not owning them in ourselves. But if we could like, think if you learned about the function of projection, just like as a part of our human psyche and like how we function in reality. But if we learned about that as children, you know, like every single person you interact with, like I, I, I'm getting reflections from my, my 11 year old daughter all the time, or the person I meet at the, at the ch- store checkout line. It's like, we're constantly projecting. And so if we could, if we could use that consciously, like how much would that serve our evolution on a day-to-day basis? Like how much could we grow and evolve and learn from each other versus making it a us versus them, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. You know, so it's, yeah, I, I think that especially in realms of therapy or, you know, any type of authoritative position, whether they're like a professor or a teacher, you know, any type of like power dynamic going on there. Um, I think it's really important to be aware of projection because again, like that's why I was, I was saying like, I love giving people tools to empower themselves. Like I don't want them to, to project onto me. I don't use the word healer by the way. And that's another one that my therapist was like, you should try to like reclaim that word and like what it means for you. Um, and I am trying to do that in some respects, but I don't ever tell people like, Oh, I'm a healer, you know? And again, no judgment to people who resonate with that word. I have just found that for myself personally, uh, that word, I don't ever want people to get the impression that they're going to come me and come to me for help. And I'm going to quote unquote, heal them. You know, like that's a very dangerous, like, I don't know. I'm just not very into that. So um, I believe that we heal, we're self-healers, you know, we heal ourselves and we can do that through reflections though, for sure. And and those reflections can help us become more aware of our blind spots, really. 
Right. Have you read Inner Gold by Robert Johnson? I haven't. It's really good. He he's written a lot of really awesome shit. He's like a Jungian analyst. An al- oh, nice. At, yeah. Cannot say that word right now. Analyst. Um, and writes about mythology a lot. He wrote these books, He and She, which like examine femininity and masculinity through mythology, basically. Um, but he wrote this book, Inner Gold, and I swear it was the first time that I like actually understood uh, psychological projection, but the entire book is about projecting gold, like our inner God at someone like the whole guru thing. Right. And it was the first time, like, first of all, I didn't even like realize, Oh, right. Projection can be projecting positive qualities that we're not Mm -hmm. ready to embody in ourselves onto someone else. Um, but also that recognition of like, when you're projecting, it doesn't mean that that person doesn't have those qualities necessarily, right? So like Mm -hmm. if I'm projecting some sort of leadership onto someone, that person probably is in a leadership position. Like Mm -hmm. projecting doesn't mean you're making it up. It just means that there's that mirror in front of you to be Mm -hmm. like, hey, there's this thing that you're not embodying internally. It is taking a tangible, both a psychological and a tangible form. Um, But yeah, highly, it's like 75 pages. All his books are like tiny and it's just like, packed with like the sounds like my jam (laughs) yeah yeah and I I liked what you said about projecting you know projecting the good things onto other people because I also think that that's for me that's the ultimate goal is to be in tune with that inner wisdom and inner gold and inner treasure chest in my own heart and in myself and then project that onto people not not just projecting but it's like it allows me to see that in other people Mm. and so therefore it's just a reflection of my own beauty and worth versus projection um onto meaning like they have it and I don't like I think they, that that can turn from projection into reflection I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah I agree yeah all right we should probably wrap up even though I don't want to <laughs> um so before we go though um if you could tell everyone where to find you and learn more about you and your work and then if you could recommend one book to the audience uh, oh, that you guys... I, I listened to your podcast and I knew you were going to ask that question. And I totally forgot. Like I didn't even prepare for it. <laughs> so hard to just choose one. I know. Well, I'll say, so people can find me at my website is lilithandlavender.com or I'm on Instagram at lilithandlavender. Um, and yeah, shit, my favorite book. There's so many. I read, I'm, I'm like a Gemini rising. So I read like 50 books at one time too. It's like terrible. Oh, I know. <laughs> the first one is Becoming Animal by David Abram. It's, and he also wrote a book called um, Spell of the Sensuous, but I prefer Becoming Animal. Um, but it's all about, it's all about everything that we talked about today, basically. It's just like how to tune into um, the intelligence of nature through the body, how to embrace your animal nature. Um, as a sacred thing. And then the other book that I really, really love, and I I listened to it, I've read it a couple different times, is the book Belonging by Toko Pa Turner. Uh, this book deals more with like the mother wounds stuff, the scarcity mentality, abandonment wounds, things mm-hmm. like this. And it's really, really great, um, especially if you do have you know, abandonment trauma, attachment wounding and things like this. But it's all basically about belo- coming home to belonging in yourself. And it was extremely healing for me. And of course, the sacred prostitute, because that's like what brought us together. So I have to yes. mention that one. But Good. I would say those are my top three. I'll stop at three. <laughs> I love books. So. Yeah, it's cruel. Like me and my like 
<laughs> Jupiter and Gemini. I'm just like, if someone asked me this question, I just can kill them. <laughs> and I do it anyway. Uh, I know, and I just can't believe that I've listened to so many of your podcasts and I like, I like in the back of my head knew you were going to ask and I just totally didn't prepare. So whatever, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so, so much. This was fun. Maybe uh, in a year I can peer pressure you to come on again and we can continue. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, again, if you'd like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, K-A-A-T-S. You can throw me a few bucks a month, lots of perks like playlists and WhatsApp group chats and book lists and lots of other cool shit alongside lots of other cool people. Uh, or you can go to iTunes um, hit, uh, subscribe and leave some stars in a review. That's free. Takes no time at all. Um, I'm going to play you out with such a good song. Um, Aaron, who is my musical muse, uh, in addition to my everything muse, um, who I have to wrap this up because I'm about to go do a remote belly dance class with her. Um, Aaron played me this song, which I hadn't heard this in so many years. It was so overplayed at the time, I feel like, and I didn't really like it. But hearing it again for the first time, and I don't even know how long, we literally, the two of us listening to it, just like got up and danced very aggressively. And listening to the lyrics now, they make so much more sense to me. I don't think they made any sense to me at the time. Um, but holy shit, do they make sense? And do I resonate with them? And they are so so applicable to this podcast so without further ado um playing you out with bitch by meredith brooks talk to you next week So good to me, I know, but I can't change Tried to tell you, but you look at me like maybe I'm an angel underneath Innocent and sweet Yesterday I cried You must have been relieved to see the softer side I can understand how you'd be so confused I don't envy you I'm a little bit of everything I'll roll into one I'm a bitch, I'm a lover, I'm a child I'm a mother, I'm a sinner, I'm a saint I do not feel ashamed I'm your hell, I'm your dream I'm nothing in between You know you wouldn't want it any other way So take me as I am This may mean you'll have That when I start to make you nervous And I'm going to extremes Tomorrow I will change And today